Awesome. So, yeah, I just did one of your retreats uh, a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. It opened up a lot of things. Actually, we were talking about earlier, relevant to my family. Um, but I actually don't know much of your background. I know mm-hmm. you do a Boba Quest. I know we have some similar interests. We might even talk about like tomorrow and stuff. I don't know. I'm, yeah. I'm reading that book that you, I'm almost done with it actually. How about like it? Yeah, it's, uh, I'm forgetting, uh, what's it called again? The, the practice. Uh, karma, karma, karma yeah, movement. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So it's a Tibetan uh, sexual practice. Tibetan Tantra, is that? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, not the Tantra uh, within the Tibetan. <laughs> So Tantra is not just about uh, sex practices, yeah. it's way more, so Tantrism, mm-hmm. it's a whole school of Vajrayana Buddhism, right. but one one of the practices is the, they call it the concert practice or union mm-hmm. practice, which is with a partner and doing sexual practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's like uh, Tibetan red Tantra. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So actually first, uh, how, how did your path Get a yoga quest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my path started. Uh, also, just to say, you're a psychotherapist yeah. by trade. So that's what you went to school in yeah. Mexico for that? or I went to university for psychology okay. and a bachelor's and then mm-hmm. a master's in clinical psychology. Okay. And then I have another master's in gestalt therapy. Gestalt? Okay, gestalt. Okay. Gestalt, okay. Yeah. gestalt psychotherapy, which is a. Um, pretty experiential type of psychotherapy mm-hmm. and based on the present moment or taking responsibility and to cultivate awareness mostly. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, that's my academic background. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, I started with a lot of curiosity since, since I was a teenager, especially with meditation first. Mm-hmm. That's my main interest. Um, but I grew up in a city, pre-conservative, and with not, not so much openness back, back then. You grew up in Puebla? In Puebla, okay. yeah. And um, just, you know, yoga. That, mm-hmm. that was the, the only thing. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people, it was considered almost like a devil Weird. thing. Yeah. <laughs> like a demonic thing. And, but anyway, I, and through a friend, actually, when I was 17, I was seen biking a lot and, mm-hmm. and I hang out with guys older than me. They were four years stuff. And he told me about psychedelic mushrooms that mm-hmm. he once in a while goes to Huautla de Jimenez, the, the Maria mm-hmm. Sabina town here. And um, I got super curious, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. wow, like sounds, so like make, make a lot of sense to me. Like, yeah, you take a plant, you open your consciousness and that's therapeutic. So I was super super into it but uh, without any resources around me mm-hmm. so and i first wanted to study economics actually mm-hmm. but then after some experiences i decided to go to psychology and immediately when i start to open up more into psychology i start to research more in psychedelics and uh, aside from that i start to meditate by myself like mm-hmm. actually like without any teacher so how old were you when you tried psilocybin the first time no you're like 20 Three was my first psychedelic okay. with ayahuasca. Ah, okay. Oh, yeah. so you were researching psilocybin, but you hadn't tried it yet? Or you were looking uh, yeah, into exactly. it? Yeah, exactly. I oh, have researched okay. a lot of years before I tried it. Why is that? I don't know. I, ne- I, I, I never, I, I didn't have a, like a people with experience that uh-huh. can tell me, like I was kind of a weird guy in my uh-huh. community, you know, the only guy that was interested in that. And Except for this friend who told you about it. Yeah, but he was gone by then. Ah, okay. so when I was in college, he, he ah, okay. moved to Spain and he was like 40 to something. And 
and he was more in the recreational aspect mm -hmm. also. And um, so, yeah, we was, well, I moved to Spain for a year and there um, I met with a couple of friends that told me that they were opening a school here in Mexico called the Escuela Claudio Naranjo. Mm -hmm. you know? And Claudio Naranjo was a pioneer in the psychedelic mm -hmm. uh, therapy and also in bringing like the wisdom of the West to, of the East, sorry, to the West. So he's Spanish or Mexican? He's Ch Chilean. Ah, okay. From oh, Chile. that's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. From Chile, but he also was an American resident mm -hmm. and lived in Berkeley mm -hmm. in California. And um, so he started to, um, I mean, he, he's a, a huge, uh, you know, he got super big, mm -hmm. super famous, wrote a lot of books. So um, I started studying with him and become close to him. And that opened me so much, so much doors, you know, mm -hmm. because he, his main approach was to build a uh, school for seekers. You know, mm -hmm. like people will have this, uh, you know, um, curiosities or want to, to, to learn more about themselves. And he kind of brought a lot of tools, different tools to help people transform and mm -hmm. open their path in a way. You know? So, and then I met people there that were into the medicines and stuff. I, and I went to, to a ceremony, ayahuasca ceremony here in Tepos. Uh, mm -hmm. oh, okay. 15 years ago. Okay. Yeah. No, like, a little less, but yeah. And, you know, one thing started to unfold. Yeah. And I when did you try psilocybin for the first time? And when was that like after researching for so long? Psilocybin was in San Jose del Pacifico in okay. Oaxaca. Mm -hmm. I was with a friend, and with a cousin. And um, we took it in the mountain and it was one, one of my most profound experiences because mm -hmm. it was during the last pandemic happening here in Mexico. So there was no one there. Mm -hmm. And I was more deep into meditation. That was my main practice and is my main practice. Psychedelics for me is just a tool, but it's not the path. Mm -hmm. And um, so we, we took that, we took it in the, in the forest and it was like a mind blowing experience, mm -hmm. you know? And we didn't even know the dosage. She was like, mm -hmm. just grab, like, you know, someone gave us the loss and ate all. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I was curious because uh, uh, I didn't know nothing about mushrooms. I think I was also 23 or maybe 21 or something. And my friend just came home. It was my college roommate. It's like, here, I got mushrooms. I didn't, I thought it was going to be like smoking weed or uh -huh. eating an edible. I had no idea. And it sent me and it changed my whole life. Yeah. Like I was going to go into the Marines and then. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was, I was already an officer candidate. I already had, I just had to graduate from school in two months and then I would oh. be deployed or, you know, I'd be sworn in. Uh, and then the mushrooms, it just changed my, it changed many things. I decided to change a lot of my thoughts. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. For me, I, after like in the, um, in the meditation and in the Buddhist tradition that I follow, there is different practices mm -hmm. and different, there are no levels, but different jhanas, they call it different vehicles. And actually that, that experience kind of sh brought me to the part I am right now, you know, mm -hmm. so it was like a, initiation so to speak mm. of uh you know the nature of mind and i was like wow what is this so it, it, it's, it's also represented a huge shift for me mm. and actually it was the biggest one the first one for me mm -hmm. yeah same yeah, <laughs> yeah. the uh some psychedelics or mushrooms i guess well, psychedelics uh, kind of fit into your buddhist practice already well, it's uh, not in the, the traditional Buddhism doesn't contemplate psychedelics as much mm -hmm. or nothing. There is some stories and some like uh, anthropological studies about that the roots of Buddhism might be, uh, you know, 
exposed mm -hmm. to different medicines as they were the veterans were with the soma and stuff yeah. like that. But um, but not it, it's just speculation. But, but I meant basically when you're hallucinating, you saw oh, yeah. imagery that fit with yeah. what you had learned been learning already. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. And I, I first started the meditation, my meditation path in the um, Theravada tradition or mm -hmm. Hinayana, which is the tradition more life in. That's Thailand. what I was raised in. Uh -huh. Yeah, not that I, I know much raised? about it. My father's from Sri Lanka, so oh, that's yeah. that I've been, yeah. yeah, it's been in Sri Lanka, Burma, Thailand, Thailand yeah. India, some parts. And after this experience, I had more like a suction experience. A suction? Uh, suction is like the... Um, oh, suction. Suction, uh -huh. like the uh, highest tantra in, mm -hmm. in Vajrayana Buddhism or in the Nigma school. Mm -hmm. and, and that was like, was like a wall, like this is not just like follow your breath meditation, no, there is more. And after that, I didn't know anything about Vajrayana Buddhism. And after that, true. What do you mean? Like, what's beyond? What do you mean by there's more than following your breath? I mean, like, the first stage of meditation are kind of you're training your mind to remain in the present. Mm -hmm. you know, you, you're trying to follow your breath. And if a thought comes, you just let it go and come mm -hmm. back to your breath. So you're working with uh, concentration. Mm -hmm. you know? But uh, the, the, I mean, I'm not a scholar in Buddhism to teach the whole details mm -hmm. about it. But as I understand it, it's like this: uh, more you're you're kind of uh, when, when you are able to remain in the present moment or to abide in, in you know in in um, stillness, then um, that's the first stage. Mm -hmm. But then you start to open more your your awareness, mm -hmm. open more your field of awareness. And you start to work more with emptiness and with, um, yeah, with, with non-duality as well. Mm -hmm. No, not so much about, oh, my thought is bad or this emotion is bad. So I have to, to do, use an antidote to, you know, to not be angry. And the suction pad is more like you just open and welcome everything because everything is the same nature. Mm -hmm. no? and, is the, and is the practice that now you're just observing your thoughts? No, or it's is like something more. There is nothing to do. It's, it's weird because uh -huh. the, the practice is like there is nowhere to go, nothing to do, mm -hmm. and everything is perfect as it is. But the thing is that you have to recognize that perfection and that that kind kind of a diverse equality or unifying diversity of all phenomena. So you are seated or not seated because that's also a thing that Sachin confronts a lot. Like mm -hmm. there is the the non meditation is the meditation. Mm -hmm. And when you are just in that, uh, cultivating that view, and uh, the view of non-duality, to, mm -hmm. to make it short. And um, so it's more like a, it is more, it's similar to, for example, instead of looking at your thoughts, you, or instead of looking, because you meditate with your eyes open, instead of look, looking into the phenomena, you look into space. It's similar. It's not like that, but it's similar to that, mm -hmm. you know. Or instead of looking at the sounds, you look into the silence behind it. Mm -hmm. And instead of looking into your sensations, you look in the stillness of it behind mm -hmm. that, you know. So you are kind of uh, shifting your way of being or your way of abiding from your attentional system, focusing your breath, for example, mm -hmm. into the whole field of awareness. And so it, it, all the phenomena that arises from that field of awareness are the same nature, mm -hmm. and you don't have to do anything about it. Yeah, so mm -hmm. I've, I've never really gone deep into meditation, and I've never had anything close to mystical experience. But every time I've gotten into meditation a little bit, 
and then like, oh, well, this is just a state of being to have an everyday life. I, I start to lose interest in sitting on a meditation cushion and I try to be present. But of course, I don't remember to do that. Like now we're talking about it. I'm like, let me be as present as yeah. possible. Let's <laughs> to every word you say and like feel the silence around us. But I don't obviously I don't normally think that way. Right? It's easy for me to lose that awareness. But that's but that, that's exactly the meditation. Sometimes they, it's explained as um, not a cultivation, but as a, a remembering. You know, this is like the, the non-meditation or the, um, uh, they, they call it the formal meditation, but you see it and do a practice and the post-meditation state is try to remember that state of, mm-hmm. of openness. I like the word openness because it's, uh, when you are lost in thought or lost in phenomena, your attention narrows. You know, you have a, a struggle inside of you, mm-hmm. everything turns into that struggle and you might be, also lose touch of the surroundings, you know. And openness is like, while you allow that struggle to be, you are also kind of with, with like the lens of the camera open and, allow, uh-huh. and aware of everything around it. Mm-hmm. So you, there is nothing to fix. It's just kind of stepping back. And at the same time, you're, for example, in, in social meditation, there is nothing to do about thoughts. They're okay. They're just expression of the nature of mind. But the thing is that you are recognizing that purity in all the phenomena and you are not uh, lost in the content of the mm-hmm. phenomena you know or in the opinions or judgments about it it's like mm-hmm. i like this or i want like this you are just kind of watching the show mm-hmm. of the you know the emanations of you know this weird life <laughs> so what do you think about so like most of personal development and most of self-help psychology and maybe a lot of people that come to your retreats and stuff they want something specific. Mm-hmm. They want to heal a problem. They want to be a different kind of personality. They want better things in their life. They want to be more attractive. Oh, everything, right? This is what everybody's selling. Yeah. You know, uh, how do you feel about that compared to what you just described where you're kind of not wanting anything, right? Like you're whatever is. Yeah. More than not wanting, because that's, that's kind of the Hinayana path of renunciation. Mm-hmm. It's like I am just in my robes. I'm uh, begging for food, and that's mm-hmm. it. It's like completely engagement with everything. It's like you can be eating a burger, you know, and that's a subject experience. Mm-hmm. You can be uh, in the mountains, you know, doing an offering, and, that, and there is no, there is no difference. Mm-hmm. You know, it, like the view is the same that you cultivate. Now. But the thing is, for me, I mean, there is like. Um, there's no levels, but like uh, layers of, of our ex- human experience. Now. And the first layer, it's our confused mind, which is traumatized. You know? And um, for that trauma, when you have a struggle, you have a problem, you have, you know, you have a uh, indecision to make about if you want to be with someone or someone, whatever you have, or you have a childhood experience that is haunting you, etc. For me, the most powerful path is the union of meditation, psychotherapy, and a modified, amplified state of consciousness mm-hmm. through psychedelics or through breath or through whatever you want to do. But those three, I found it is a very powerful combination because whenever you want, you, you try to be still in this state of openness. Everything that is inconclusive in you, all the open gestalt, as, as they mm-hmm. call it, gestalt, all the trauma, all the repressed feelings, all the core beliefs, everything starts to, to come to the surface. Mm-hmm. If you're a strong meditator, as a, you know, a yogi in Tibet or whatever, or in Bhutan, 
they just get through it. You know, they, they that that's that's what you can learn about uh, the Tibetans being in jail. You know, they were super strong practitioners, and they go through extreme torture and stuff like that without losing compassion and wisdom or openness. Mm -hmm. you know, they go through that, but us as Westerns, also with different different cultures and different challenges. Um, it is important to have the space to process everything that arises in your meditation, you know, because it, as I understand it, it's like our, our natural state of being is completely present and spontaneously present. You don't, we don't have to do anything about it to be present. But the fact that we are not is because there is trauma that fragment us inside and it's hard to abide in the present because, you know, stuff start to come up mm -hmm. and we learn how to protect ourselves dissociating from the present, mm -hmm. going to our mind or doing different blockage, etc. So that combination is awesome because uh, everything that comes up or takes you out of the present is telling you a lot about where is your mind and where your healing mm -hmm. needs to happen. You know? Just by sitting, I always put to my clients this, this uh, experiment, it's like just sit in your room and five minutes and do nothing. You don't have to follow your breath, you don't have to meditate, you don't have to write, you don't have to do just do anything. And by just that experiment, they realize a lot about, oh yeah, I'm, I, I'm constantly thinking about the other's needs, for example. I'm constantly judging myself about that. that, that, that. They, everything that is uh, uh, not resolved starts to come, you know, when, when we just stop shaking the bucket. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so psychotherapy gives you, so like people coming into the retreats with different problems, I share a little bit of meditation, but not my, not my whole path because I don't, I don't know. It's like a meditation for me is like a it's like a lover, you know. It's like a like you you have to build up a relationship. You have it's like a it's for me meditation is like making love with life because you are like fully engaged and fully touched by life. You know, so that's someone some people are attracted to that, some are not, and that's okay. Um, but through therapy, what we do is like a kind of give space, bring awareness to whatever is not resolved or whatever is there, you know, and um, create a space so people can express it, process it, understand it, and uh, gain more awareness of that, you know, gain more awareness about your triggers, gain, gain more awareness about your repressed emotions, etc. So, and, and, and when you do that, also kind of meditation or, yeah, that state of openness starts to come naturally. And a lot of people after the therapeutic process, they start to get naturally more involved or interested in, in meditation. And as a power tool, there is the amplified state of consciousness or non-ordinary state of consciousness. When you can also uh, gain some perspective about yourself in the therapeutic dose or therapeutic process, but also having these experiences that, that they are not the goal, but they're like a beacon that you can follow. You know, mm -hmm. if you have like an open experience, that is kind of a, a good re a good thing to 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 then start to recollect or, or remind to to be like that. I don't know mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting because I just had a guest on my friend Brian Vision. He was speaking different subjects. He was speaking about like attracting what you want and how what stops it is these traumas or blocks or defense mechanisms that kind of. You know, I forget exactly what language he used, but it's like as these things come up, if you learn to release them and let go and you speak more about the Sedona method, then then you're just clear and mm -hmm. then things there's no friction. Yeah. You know, as I actually remember what you just said with the psychedelics, 
one of my first podcast guests, Neil Goldsmith, uh, a psychedelic guy. He was saying that, um, you know, a lot of therapy is like your consciousness is a well and there's a lot of leaves that fell in the well, so uh-huh. you can't see through. I don't know if he invented this. Maybe for this, I don't know. Uh, and then psychedelics, it like, it makes the, and then therapy, you're trying to get the leaves out mm-hmm. so you can see. The psychedelics makes the leaves translucent uh-huh. so you can like immediately see a little bit through. Exactly. For a while. Yeah. And for example, with people, so like the more, the more traumatized you are, uh, or the more, uh, yeah. Or that 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 means like you have a deep addiction or depression or mood disorder or whatever. Like the more traumatized you are, the more narrow and rigid your your attention is. Mm-hmm. You know, that, because that's a, a defense mechanism. It's like I can't be open to all this pain, so I have to close down to to narrow my view and focusing something. You know, so for example, people with depression. Sometimes they have, it's like having a cloud on, on front of their heads without the possibility to see anything. Even psychotherapy or meditation, they are in those cases sometimes very limited because uh, like the, the, the rigidity of their, their attentional system is too tight and, and too um, defended that it's super hard to get out of it. So suddenly a psychedelic experience can bring a space to that. And they see other things other than the, the, the depression. For example, the the causes of the depression, mm-hmm. you know? or um, or yeah, or for example, with psilocybin, there's a common experience of uh, having a mixed, mystical experience, mm-hmm. which also like take you out of the moth. You know, it's like having a breath, and then the, the work is not over yet. Mm-hmm. It's starting there. It's like you are finally eased your symptoms, so you have room to explore yourself, to heal deeply, and to find a path. No. The second biggest, uh, or maybe is equal with my first uh, mushroom experience, also really big. I fell out of time. Like all of my life was happening at once. So I didn't know there's no time, right? Everything was happening at the same time. And then all of everyone's life was happening at once. So like I didn't have an identity. I had just enough of my remembrance of an identity to, to be scared. Like, oh, I everything is happening everywhere. Like, Am I ever going to live a life again? That's just like, oh shit, like all of, you know, I just, you don't exist. I don't know if I can explain it better than that, but it's like all of time and all of space is all happening at once. So I'm like nothing. And then slowly, you know, the medicine wear down and I came back to 2012 yeah. in New York. And I'm like, of all of the things, why did I come back to this random moment? Because right? at that point it had been an eternity and I felt like I was experiencing every single person's consciousness. Like why this random person named Ruan? And then I was like, well, the, the, I kind of felt like, well, my life is kind of meaningless, not in a bad way. I was just like, well, who cares what happens? All of these other lives are happening at the same time, you know? I think I, I like, I mean, in Buddhism, they call that the fourth time. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, I don't know if you've seen some wrathful deities in Vajrayana Buddhism, like the, the ones that appear like demons sometimes. Mm-hmm. And they have three eyes. And it's because they have the, also like the, our highest self or I will enlightenment self, uh, we live in the fourth time when past, present and future happens at the same time, mm. you know? And as you say, like, uh, there is no individuality. Yeah. There is collective, also like, all beings are the same, so to speak. So your life is others' life. Your so- uh, other sufferings is your suffering, you know? Yeah. And, um, but I like what you say about the insignificance of life because Recently, I've been going through that, like, uh, for example, I, since I was 20, I focus a lot in my work, a lot, like too much, maybe, because I confuse it as my path sometimes. It's like, 
no, like my curiosity and my path is it's the same as my my work. And now I'm, I've been confronting that idea, and it's like no, no, it's a uh, it's an expression of my path, but it's not my path, you know. And if I confuse them, I I I might be compromising my path because I go into work or work, no. But the thing that what I was thinking that I resonate what you say is that sometimes. Uh, in this society, we we give so much um, importance to the me, to the you know <laughs> what I want, and what I need, my career, my projects, you no, know? and that for me lately it's been more like a trap. It's like trying to uh, make life significant. Yeah, you know. Yeah. When it's not, it's not. But but it's okay that it's not. It's there is it's freedom. It is not. It's just a mystery. And you just have to be involved with it. Totally. You know? No yeah. matter how big you get, if you put that in timeline, it's a grain of salt. You know, yeah. it's a stupid. So it's insignificant. Yeah, like no one remembers <laughs> even their own ancestors after three generations. Exactly. Like we, we yeah. Nalaya had some pictures in her uh, that her grandmother gave her of like, like uh -huh. nobody knows their names <laughs> already. You know, and it's yeah. great grandfather of my dad, for example, uh -huh. or something like this. It's, it's relatively close. Yeah. And nobody re uh, remember about it. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I mean, I, I do kind of feel like this pressure sometimes because I chose a career where my face and the number of likes matters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's like it is almost directly it affects everything, right? And then I don't want to be online, and I don't actually I don't even want to care about that. But then it's like, but then so many things, even people not in this kind of career, are that's that's the currency yeah. of our day, you know, and like. Uh, yeah, just caring about what you look like. But then when you zoom out, there's always someone, uh, I, I'm making this video on uh, what happens when a man learns martial arts. Mm -hmm. It's like when you train a lot, you've gotten your butt kicked a lot, and you like you know that there's no way you think that you're the best. Yeah. Because it's impossible. Like, you know there's, even, even if you're the best in your gym, you know that there's someone who's like actually an ADCC champ, or you wouldn't even come close, even if you're a black belt kind of thing. It's just like, it's like so insignificant that you're, you know, number four billion out of yeah. eight billion. Like, yeah. who cares? You know? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, but it's how, like, and, and I, I mean, this might be wrong, but I think I feel it more a pressure as, as men mm -hmm. about the career and stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, like this society reinforced so much. Like, you have to, be, like, you, your project is the most important thing in your life. You know? Yeah. And um, as Gabor Mate, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Gabor Mate mentioned, like, uh, I, I like what he comments about that in this society we admire extremely traumatized people, you know, people that, mm -hmm. they, that, that they destroy their uh, relationships or they go against themselves, even getting sick, but they're super successful in their career. Mm -hmm. So they're praised and admired. You know? Yeah. Well, uh, and a lot of, in, and this is all self-exploration, but a lot of the motivation to pursue a career that far is based on trauma. Is wanting to be validated, wanting to feel uh, that you have value, that you are worth it, that uh, you're accepted, you're recognized, you're loved, etc., etc., etc. And um, the the career part aspect is a, it's a it's a great um, way to put that. You know? Yeah, and it's kind of like with um, any substance addiction. And you know, yeah. I'm sure about this more than me, but like with any substance, whether it's illicit drugs or whatever. A non-traumatized person would get full before it's damaging, even if it's cake. Absolutely. Right. Whereas yeah. a 
you know, a super obese person, they're missing that signal that they're full because yeah. of something else. Yeah, I, I, actually, in the, I think it was the last Cowboys book, The Myth of Normal. He mentioned something about well, a conversation with someone that was in an obesity clinic mm -hmm. and people, you know, relapsing and relapsing as addicts do now. And, um, and some guy told him, like, you know, you, you don't understand that we, we don't eat because we are hungry. We eat, we eat because we want to don't feel the pain. Mm -hmm. And that's the root of all addictions, you know. Mm -hmm. And the more pain you have, the more attractive will be any substance or behavior to continue, continue, to continue trying to try to heal it in a way. Yeah. Or even for fame. Or that, that's like one of the big analyses, I guess, of all cult leaders, but the leader of the cult I was in, like she was really traumatized as a child. And actually I know someone who dated her like 20 years ago where she said on, uh, on the date, I mean, I'm getting this third hand information, oh. but he said, she said something, this is before she had a cult. She said, she is so in need of love that she has to form a cult yeah. to feel complete. Yeah. And then, you know, 20 years later, she had some cult that, you know, all, all yeah. this other stuff. As I get, it's interesting because all of these needs, let's say with fame and career and success, we all want more of it, but to abandon certain things or to want so far beyond your appetite. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think one of the biggest skills for me or, or signs of maturity is the ability to, contentment mm -hmm. to know to know really what you need not what you want but really what you need and to be able to recognize when you are there you know when, you're, when your needs are met and you have a you know you, you feel that you have a development and stuff like that but I grew up with a, a lot of uh, male figures that were devoted to business specifically mm -hmm. that that was the male figure in my childhood no it's like the man is a provider and that's it and I had my uh, different examples of that uh, greed also and that ambition to get more and more and more. And uh, people that, uh, or these guys that they didn't know how to stop. Mm -hmm. They're now either they're like- You're talking about your relatives? Yeah, my relatives or my dad's friends and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Uh, but the ones that, are, that, that were like pursuing more like this, gaining more money, more recognition, more power, whatever they're all super fucked up right now, mm -hmm. you know, like at 60, they're super consumed. Mm -hmm. And the other guys that were more um, content and they also develop other things other than work or their career, they have a more healthy relationship, for example, less anxiety because they, they all, it's weird because all my dad's friends start to reach out to me. It's like, you know, what am I doing with my anxiety? And I have like, they, they, they have the problem with anxiety, mm -hmm. depression, insomnia, etc. So that opened my eyes, my eyes a lot, and lately I've been kind of embodied my more into my life to, to see where is enough and also what other aspects of my life I want to develop that they, they have nothing to do with a career. Yeah, you know, after that men's group we had a couple of weeks ago, or the drunk chess playing yeah. men's group, you know, we were talking about other things, and and I, it really dawned on me that the lifestyle I want to have, which I do have the freedom for, but I feel guilty about, is just to do one work task a day yeah you know two to four hours maybe five hours sometimes and then have family time that's like what exactly. i've always wanted and like to think that i need to work an extra three hours four hours comes from this feeling of scarcity that yeah. you know but actually i don't even think that it would affect my income i'm not sure exactly yeah yeah you have to just uh, polish your method mm -hmm. you know to work less and have good income but not get yeah. lost in that but that the guilt is an important thing yeah i always when i'm there is a monday I, and i have like a day 
a free day or just one session a day, there is some, you know, restlessness in, in like, I should be doing something. Yeah, this idea that yeah. it's okay. I mean, yeah, because, like, my income dropped right around when my baby was born. So I was like, shit, like, I really need to work extra, extra, extra. But now that we're working less, like, I don't think me working twice as much even affected my income. Yeah. It might have made it worse, actually, because I yeah. was tired and stressed exactly. and, you know, missing certain family moments. That was my big insight after I had a baby also. It's like uh, I, some, I, I start to feel not as sharp or present during holding the space for others in mm-hmm. individual sessions or groups and stuff like that. And I start to get super curious about like what's going on. I lost my my game, you know, mm-hmm. everything is, is going to shit. But then it's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, there was this pressure of, no, you, you have to say yes to all the opportunities mm-hmm. because you have to provide more and you mm-hmm. have to get the opportunity to grow. And I was compromising my quality mm-hmm. for my quantity. And so after a, a lot of process internally, I just uh, cut off a lot of stuff and, cool. and really do what I'm doing. What do you, what do you spend your time on more now? Or, or what maybe things are you, are you wanting to do more of? I always have, a, for example, right now, I always feel, I, I always had this crazy idea that after 20s or something, I, I can't learn anything else. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. if I didn't learn it as a child, I can't. Yeah. You know? And so I, right now I'm feeling like the, the need to, to, to do something like that. I'm willing to, I, I'm always very inclined to music, but I never learned to play mm-hmm. anything. So I'm, I want to play something. And also actually following in my kid uh, path to, to learning and mm-hmm. to exploring that be, this has been helping me a lot to, to, you know, awaken the, the wonder again, yeah. you know? Yeah. Actually, I, I just thought of it like, uh, learning certain skills, like, mm-hmm. you know, I guess he's a few years away, but if he wants to learn guitar when he's five, you could learn together. Exactly. You know? Exactly. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. And also the other day that you mentioned that you're for the yeah, riding, riding horses yeah. or you learn how to grow chickens or to raise chickens. That was like, yeah, yeah, of course. You know, I've always been, have a lot of curiosity in life, yeah. but I was narrowing myself just work. And right now I'm trying to, yeah. to expand to other things. You know? I actually felt like I have to learn how to ride horses now because I feel like, Maybe it's a little the opposite. I feel like I can't learn when I'm 50. Yeah. It's too late. Like I, I actually only have a few, maybe 10 more years where I can really learn a new skill and then use it, you know? So I'm like, I have to ride horses now. You know? That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I think that's, and, and it has to do a, I've been doing a lot of practices too, and iBogging helps a lot into that, into have the healthy dopamine levels. Mm-hmm. Because learning has to do a lot of the dopamine, you know? Yeah. And uh, when, when you're, you know, ups and downs in dopamine, there is no that energy. And I lived like that a lot, you know, like stressed and then coping with easy dopamine. And um, and right now, since I took Ayogen uh, two years ago, the first time, I like I felt how is, how is, how does it feel to have healthy dopamine levels? And it was amazing. It was like, why? And like, it's like having your, you know, your how do you say like your gas tank full. You know, like mm-hmm. that feeling of I can go anywhere, I can do anything, I can, um, yeah, learn stuff, I can uh, engage with people without anxiety. So like it was, it was a mind blowing thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I left with so shitty dopamine levels before. Can you speak more about because Iboga is something I never tried? And yeah, I, I'm curious about. It. All I know about it is that 
addicts take iboga and then they never go back. Yeah, I guess usually, I don't know. Actually, that's a little sad of, of Ibogaine that in the West is only famous because of the addiction interruption, mm-hmm. which is an amazing quality of the Ibogaine and a miracle for so many people, and especially with opiate addicts. But Ibogaine is way, or uh, Iboga is way more, is bigger than that. No? So Iboga, like a, a background, it, it's a root or it's a plant. Iboga is a plant uh, from... Africa, mainly in Cameroon, in Gabon, mm-hmm. mainly. And there is a cult there called Biwiti, which are the guys that traditionally use Iboga in a shamanic context. Mm-hmm. And they do. That's where like, uh, they believe in like the Orishas and stuff like that. Yeah. Orishas? Is that what they call their spirits? I might be mixing up African religions. I, I mean, I mean, I'm not okay. an expert in Biwiti, but okay. uh, probably, yeah, they, they, mm-hmm. they work a lot with dancers there, with spirits. And it's, um, and, and there is different branches of Bigwitios. Okay. You know? I, I'm not, I, I know a little bit just, but the thing is that um, different people, among them Claudio Naranjo, started to explore with Ibogaine here in the West in the 60s. You know? mm-hmm. And Claudio started to do some experiments and find that they have some interesting uh, therapeutic abilities, but he didn't, he didn't was, he wasn't very impressed by his own experience, so he kind of... With Iboga, mm-hmm. the first time. He took it alone, like, mm-hmm. Ibogaine, mm-hmm. which is the alkaloid of Iboga, one of the, the most psychoactive ones. But uh, Ibogaine started to be very popular, popular because a, a guy named Howard Lotsoff, so, yeah, uh, he was a, a heroin addict, and he was talking to a chemist friend, kind of like, what, what else do you have? You know, what, what other drugs can I try? And this chemist said, you know, here, I have ibogaine. I don't, I don't know what it is. They say it's psychoactive. And he took it, 500 milligrams, which is a good dose, but not, not very high. And he realizes after the experience that he didn't have any cravings or withdrawals. Mm-hmm. So he was like, wait a second. You know, what is this? So among his junk friends start to, to, to share the ibogaine. And by, you know, uh, uh, you know, by trials, they started to develop protocols to help uh, addiction interruption. Mm-hmm. So it was like a kind of parallel movements, people working within the psychotherapy uh, uh, aspect, but this addiction interruption quality started to get super popular. And that was an underground. It wasn't like a yeah, therapist and, doing it, it was junkies yeah, helping junkies. Exactly. Yeah. You're using helping junkies and kind of doing trial and error. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? yeah. And with some casualties in the path, you know, because ah, there okay. are some things about ibogaine, for example, mixing it with opiates is super dangerous. Ah, okay. And um, and they start to develop protocols, mm-hmm. you know, to what 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 works, what is dangerous, stuff stuff like that. Um, so ibogaine has this fame of being uh, just for addiction because a lot of people is like I, ibogaine. No, I'm not an addict. No, mm-hmm. it's like no, it's way more than that. Okay. That that's one of the aspects, but it's like the most profound psychedelic in my point of view. Mm-hmm. And um, and the other is that it's dangerous. That's mm-hmm. another misconception. And of course, you have to so like the providers has to really be qualified and really know what they're doing. There is a lot of bad ones, but uh, if you take care of a couple of things, everyone is super safe. And to take mm-hmm. large doses, yeah. how, how would you compare it to psilocybin or ayahuasca? You know, like you can compare psilocybin and ayahuasca. No, mm-hmm. you know, like they're kind of. There is some similarities with different language, but it's kind of a, yeah. you know, Spanish and Portuguese, you know. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. But Ibogaine is 
like okay. another level. So I just have to try it. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's always hard to describe psychedelic experience. Yeah, but I mean, for example, it's not psychedelic in the okay. sense that there is no so much a uh, this color visions or these kind of uh, um, psychedelic journeys or mm -hmm. kaleidoscopes mm -hmm. like or mandalas yeah. or stuff like that or uh, how do you say fractals and stuff like that. Ibogaine is it's called an onirogenic, which is uh, kind of a, that induces a dream-like or a waking dream state. Mm -hmm. no? um, it's very intense, it's not easy, uh, but the visions you, you receive are very vivid and they can be super mysterious. For example, there is a lot of, of, of similarities in people uh, working with death, feeling that they go through death, feeling their body mm -hmm. goes you know, decompose, but you can feel, you can see it in a way. Mm -hmm. And like in a dream, because so you know you are in Ibogaine, mm -hmm. but you see it. <laughs> it's like a lucid dream. It's like yeah. a lucid dream, exactly. When you realize, yeah, a lucid dream. And, um, but, um, so it's a lot about that and like the mystery, of the root of life, the mystery of life. Um, but also it has a lot of autobiographical content that can take you, uh, another common vision in Ibogaine is like you kind of, recapitulate your whole life mm -hmm. you go through your whole life and and you know you get to the root of traumas also mm -hmm. the, what happened or how did it happen etc and there is also another type of experiences that is very oniric it's very like dreamlike it's crazy symbols crazy images crazy mm -hmm. like stuff like that like very into deep deep into your unconscious and um there is also very it's very mysterious because a lot of people they have like African motives, you know? like they see in African tribes dancing or mm -hmm. African shamans guiding them to to their memories or this or that. So it's um and I mean people that have probably have no idea like people deep into fentanyl addiction that they probably haven't researched the origins of Iboga or stuff like that. They just came here from the detox and and they get those. Uh, so visions of Africa. That, that's so fascinating. Yeah, because uh, I uh, did ayahuasca. I took ayahuasca twice. Then I heard people talk about, oh, it's the grandmother spirit, like a grandmother. Yeah. And then I had a very vivid, vivid ceremony where it was like so clear. I was talking to an old woman. But afterwards, I was like, was Maybe that in my head? Yeah, yeah. Was a suggestion, or did I really tap into some? Claudio, I, I really like that because I mean, uh, when you are in psychedelics, you are highly. Suggestible. Suggestible, yeah. yeah. But Claudio did an experiment back in the 60s that he had a group of 10 people, something like that. And to five, they, he gave him gave them ayahuasca and to five Iboga mm -hmm. without knowing what it is. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have reference because by, back then, neither of those were known. Yeah. No, it's like a tea. And, no, no. and the ayahuasca guy, guys had uh, jaguars, eagles, rivers, jungle, mm -hmm. uh, jungle visions. No? And the Iboga guys had African and more motives. Like, it's it's always been fascinating to yeah. me. For me, it's like there is kind of a, this collective unconscious, you know, cl eye clouds, mm -hmm. so to speak, and the medicines kind of connect you with the with that energy or that. Yeah. that. Have you done a dieta? Yes. Yeah. Uh, of which plant? I did it with five different plants: chili sanango, uchi sanango, piripiri. Wayanchi uh, and Marusa. And you felt yeah. like you were speaking to a, a specific kind of like thing. a spirit, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, and through through dreams also. For me, huh? dietas was super powerful through dreams. Yeah, I was found interesting that uh, people who've done a dieta of a certain plant describe it the same way. The same but way. I wondered if it was again suggestion or they yeah. really. I also think it's so interesting when people learn songs. Mm-hmm. In, in there. Yeah, yeah. Icaros, yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I have a friend working with us in Goa Quest. Uh, he's from the Santo Daimi. Do you know what yeah. Is? Um, he's now writing hymns. Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked him a couple of days ago, it's like, how, how did that happen? You know, and it's like, you know, you are playing the drums with the medicine and then a word comes into your mind, like seed, for example. Mm. And from seed, sometimes they start to go, you know, to, to, mm. to unfold different phrases and you have a uh, hymn. But at other times, they're like the whole thing comes right away. Wow. It's like, I don't even have to write it. I just have to compose some music to it and sing it. Mm. Um, so that's how they received those hymns, mm. you know. But that's like a huge community, the Santo Daime, and probably yeah. a lot of energy, you know, putting the same thing and th- things start to arise, you know, in, the, in their minds. Yeah. Have you been in a Santo Daime? I haven't, no. Okay. I have did it once. I, I wasn't crazy about it, but I think maybe the... The leader I didn't like so much. I would give it a try again, maybe. Well, so this much. friend is New Yorker. Oh, okay. It's Chris, you know. You met him. You met him in the, in the retreat. We he had lunch with us. And ah, okay. You talk with him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, and he has a, a really good casa. They call it a good like church in uh, New York. Oh, really? Maybe good. Yeah. Cool, cool. They are not so like strict. So he's a, another therapist with you in Iboga Quest, or no? He's a. He came here four years ago for addiction interruption mm-hmm. and became a very close friend. And then he started a path with uh, Daime and he's a professional musician. Ah, oh, cool. And uh, he's now also helping us. Ah, oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Wait, so he's I interrupted your story. How did you get to a Boga Quest? Oh. So, okay, so I was with Claudio for a while, then he died, and Nazi and I started to open uh, our own practice. The main intention of, of that practice is that. You know, mental health and especially now, retreats and stuff like that, it's very, it's for privileged people, you know, yeah. it's uh, out of the common people. You know? And for me right now, it's getting crazy, like $10,000 retreats, stuff like that. No? So we, we were super young, we were 24 and she was 20 and um, or something like that. And we opened a, a more accessible uh, workshops and stuff. So we started to, to work in, on that and then after a long, long research in ourselves and also research, uh, we started to work with psychedelics by ourselves and started with MDMA and then psilocybin and then LSD and so like that. And always in group settings and a couple of individual sessions, but we, we like the group setting. And years after, I was, uh, I, I was always curious about Ibogaine, but Ibogaine is super expensive, mm-hmm. usually. And it's also legal, even though everything else is not in Mexico. Is not legal, not illegal. Ah, okay. It's not really okay. So you can use it. In US is Schedule One. Uh-huh. So um, other countries is, is legal. I think Canada is legal. And um, but so through we have a program here that actually two weeks we starting the the reset, which is. Um, the, a, a great way to explore explore ibogaine because it's not a flood dose completely. It's like a booster. Well, it's a small flood dose. You have a full experience, but it's a group setting. And instead of eight days, that is a, a, our regular treatment. This is three four days. Mm-hmm. So it's a great way to to have it. No. So th- before I, I I came here, I organized that, 
get so sorry they organized that and Christy invited me, which Christy is like the manager. And I was like, yeah, this is for me for sure. And um, well, before that, I wrote my bachelor thesis in addiction interruption using psychedelics mm -hmm. with ayahuasca and psilocybin and ibogaine. And since there, I was super like my dream was to work with ibogaine. Mm -hmm. You know, like I want this plant. Um, but so it's, again, it's you researched it for a long time before you yeah, tried it. Time. Yeah. I always tend to be like that. Mm. I read a lot before I start. To okay. I'm the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm starting to be more like that mm. because also in the other practice, I, but I, I have so many careers that I never go put into practice because I mm. research until my interest was gone. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, but uh, I came here for my first type of experience two, two years ago. Yeah, two years exactly. And it was my blow. So mm. like, I was like, what? What is this? You know, this is the most profound thing and the most mysterious thing as well, and the most kind of fascinating and challenging as well. So uh, talking with them, they, they they were interested in my work, and uh, I, I I knew them back then, but not not very closely. So anyway, uh, a former member of the team left, and they say, "Hey, we need a guy to help us in this session. Are you available?" Yeah, sure. And we did a good relationship, and they invited me to to stay. stay cool. And back then, it was owned by Barry, the mm -hmm. the owner, the the founder. But right now, it's a community. We own it by five. Oh, cool. So it's now like a cooperative or a community. Cool, cool. Yeah. Barry's still there. Barry's still there, and he's the owner, and he's still yeah the elder. Mm -hmm. But we take the decisions among the five of us. And, cool. And we are also growing and you know changing some stuff. Cool. And so you do, you do a few a month, right? Of these like one treatments. A oh, one a month. A month. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. It's a, we receive now six people, uh, just one week a month. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's super. It's it's a challenging process, and um, it's exhausting for both clients and, and you know space holders. Yeah. And uh, most people are there for addiction interruption. No, actually, for it's like. Let's say thirty percent addicts, oh, okay, and seventy percent mood disorder and psycho spiritual. Okay, so it's a good balance. So, but it's not so common that someone's just curious and they go. I guess. Yeah, we call it psycho spiritual. Then oh, okay. we receive sometimes a, a lot of uh, psychonauts, people that mm -hmm. are deep into this world and they want to explore more. A lot of meditators that want to people from you know the plant medicine world that want to get deep in themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the less. I think that the most we're, we're receiving right now is PTSD and uh, depression and a lot of behavioral addiction. That's very interesting. After COVID, like a lot of porn addiction, mm. a lot of um, chat sites addiction. Mm. Um, what else do we receive? And so many different drugs like opiates, cocaine, meth, kratom, GHB, alcohol, cocaine. Yeah. Um, People take GHB recreationally? A lot, yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. I, I, I only knew it as a date rape drug. So yeah. I, <laughs> I never try it, and I, never, I, I don't want it because they say it's like kind of a being drunk state. Yeah. But yeah, you know, we received two people that were really into it and ketamine. Huh. So uh, the pandemic was kind of good for business in a sense. It was good for business, yes. Okay. So, I mean, <laughs> You know, because there's a lot of arguments, obviously, and I don't know, you probably don't follow American politics, but there's a lot of arguments over lockdowns, good, bad, whatever. But at least on this end, 
it was bad for people's mental health. For sure, yeah. I mean, one one of the biggest problems right now in society is the disconnection we have from others. Mm-hmm. You know, we are extremely individualistic, mm-hmm. and that's how capitalism pushed that yeah. you know, to be more individualistic. Have you sapiens? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I think COVID just brought up. So I like exaggerate that a lot, mm-hmm. the individualism, because now the other is your enemy, yeah. is the risk is in the in your friends and family. Yeah. And also I think that uh, maybe an underlying anxiety that we are living starts to go super, super high, mm-hmm. you know? And with the uncertainty, with the fear, with the news, with the, the and, and, and the politically mm-hmm. the political struggle happening in US and in Mexico yeah. from that, you know? So definitely brought up a lot of issues. Yeah. Huh. I don't know if they were new or they were there and just came to the surface very strongly. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, obviously coping mechanisms became... Yeah. became yeah. And you are, you know, locked down with your computer. And um, so, yeah, everything, like, everything became digital. And that's uh, compromised a lot of the human relationship, you know, yeah. the... the, the life to like the one-on-one contact you know? yeah it's so because like uh, all of these addictions are like attempts to self-medicate or you know the coping mechanisms right yeah but then you have to go fly to another country for what's kind of another coping mechanism to recover from your coping mechanism yeah. i don't know if that's fair to say but i don't know like if iboga clinics were easily available in the west and like okay there's a lockdown you're anxious you go there that would cut out a huge chunk of the cycle. You wouldn't have to go through the addiction, basically. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the guys in the community, for example, for this opioid crisis happening in the US, mm-hmm. a lot of uh, the Ibogaine community is kind of divided. The ones that wants to push that as a, a solution for the opioid crisis. Mm-hmm. And they are actually trying to develop, I think they didn't go through the trials, but trying to develop a molecule that is uh, had the same effects, but without the psychedelic. Mm-hmm. So you just get your addiction interruption. Interrupt. Do you think that's possible? I mean, they're they're trying that, and they're mm-hmm. trying in mice and stuff. There's ways to mess up with the molecules and inhibit yeah. this or that, but I don't think that's beneficial. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I would think you'd have to go through that process yeah. to have the therapeutic effect. Exactly, and it's, the yeah. subjective aspect. Because I like my struggle always with the psychedelic community is that all the research is focus is focusing in the biochemistry and mm-hmm. what happens in your brain and what that's fascinating. But for me, the most healing depth of psychedelics has to do with subjective experience. Yeah. You know, when you enter in touch with the depths of your true nature, with your who you are, you open your heart, you uh, ease your defenses, you can connect more with nature, with yourself, with others, with your work, etc. Mm-hmm. So and uh, it's been it's been kind of taken out of was like, like take it as if it was an allopathic medication. Yeah, like well, you have depression, and psilocybin cures depression. So, but it's like, that's also how opiates were created. Yeah, right. You yeah. have pain. Here's this pill. Here's this pill. So, wouldn't that just become another addiction? If you're not experiencing, it's like you're not tasting the food. Exactly. Wouldn't it just become another? And uh, it's also a misinterpretation of, of the addiction because it's, uh, it's seen addiction as a, just a messed up in your neurotransmitters, mm-hmm. which is what, that's one dimension of it, of course, mm-hmm. a physical addiction. The ibogaine helps with that. But um, there is also the psychological addiction. Why are you trying to 
uh, fix your addiction. Mm -hmm. No, it's like Gabor asked, like, you don't ask what the addiction, ask what the pain, why the pain, where is the pain that you want to unmask with, especially with opiates, where it numbs you down. You know? Yeah. Hmm. So is it that, you know, like, so if alcoholism is an attempt at self-medication, porn addiction, whatever, is it that it's just easily available, it's more easily available to get addicted to porn or drink alcohol than it would be to, like, if, if, if there was an, I don't know. I'm just imagining some future where there's an aboga drink. Uh, you feel shitty about your day. You drink the aboga drink instead of alcohol. Uh -huh. Is that is that even like is that a ridiculous idea, or is it maybe just not going to be commercially successful? Because porn and alcohol, once you have a consumer, they buy more and more and more yeah. and more. Right? Yeah. Iboga, you take it once. Maybe you're not. That's the you don't idea. want anymore. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's why pharmaceuticals doesn't, they're kind of pushing against psychedelics or, mm -hmm. or these alternative uh, health uh, tools in so many levels, no? Because it's, you really heal. Mm -hmm. It's not just you're patching your symptoms. Yeah. You know? Um, but one way that I, that, like the Iboga drink, actually, what we are doing right now is doing a program with microdosing Iboga, okay. the root bark. Uh -huh. And uh, the way I start that is that uh, first, I started, I, I read a lot. That's one of my addictions. <laughs> and I read, I, I used to because I, I don't like it anymore. I, I read a lot of the, all of the articles come out in the psychedelic community because I've been involved in that. It's 13 years. And recently in the past five became super mainstream. Mm -hmm. Um, so that suddenly it's a lot. So I'm always analyzing what's the line mm -hmm. or what's the, the path they're taking. And when microdosing starts to be famous, they all, all the articles has had the same kind of uh, narrative of um, a magic pill. It's like you have anxiety, psilocybin mushrooms, take it out of, of, you know, you have a bad day, take a psilocybin microdosing and, and you will feel great. Uh, you have depression, that, that. And it's like, for me, that's a misconception of how healing happens, mm -hmm. you know, because healing for, for to heal, you have to really face what you are, uh, you are trying to avoid, mm -hmm. which is your sadness, your pain, your whatever, your those challenging emotions. So uh, I develop a program that is um, eight week uh, microdosing protocol. When we follow, I've done it with psilocybin and iboga. Then we we follow a protocol of of microdosing, but at the same time we have a, a two hour weekly session. In a therapeutic context, mm -hmm. in a group setting, so there is like group therapy where you can connect and listen to others and stuff like that. And we incorporate different tools like um, meditation, breath work, uh, journaling. Like uh, for so, like one of the main goals is for the people to create a daily practice of well-being, you know, or mental well-being. And um, and it's been amazing. So mm -hmm. like the so like the the um, the results and the depths of the process, therapeutic process are, are so fascinating. But at the end of the program, a lot of guys, they feel like not doing microdosing anymore. Yeah. You know, no, I'm fine. I, I, maybe in the future I will again, but right now I, I, I'm going to harvest what I, what I, you know, yeah. I guess that's, yeah, it's the opposite of what an addiction is. And it's the opposite yeah. of what antidepressants work, for example. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause you have to keep upping the dose yeah. actually. Um, yeah, because I, I so when I left the cult and I was pretty messed up by microdose LSD while I was a taxi driver, and it, it was so helpful. But partly because I was a taxi driver, and like 
I would take this microdose. Sometimes it was too much because I, I would cut it uh, yeah, yeah. with not. Uh, I wasn't measuring it, so sometimes uh -huh. it wasn't a microdose. But I became. I, I got the experience to talk to like 20, 30 people a day, That's and amazing. I was so interested in their lives. And like I wanted, I was like, I don't know, I was so much more social than I usually am. I just wanted to know everything about everything, even if I a ten minute drive. I want to know your whole life and what are you doing about. And it was so that was healing. Yeah. Like if I just microdosed and then sat at home, I think nothing no. would have happened. That uh, my my experience with microdosing, LSD microdosing is is similar. It's like, and I think I'm I'm I'm, I'm shy also. I'm not very social, so LSD made me very mm -hmm. like, want to engage and talk. And I feel very free and very confident. And, um, but I took it once. I remember I went to, for a hike and I had like wonderful ideas and I wrote down a lot of stuff and stuff. But then I started to do it. Yeah, I, I took it, but I stayed home or in the computer or what. And and that creativity turns into anxiety. Yeah, you know, it was yeah, like yeah. I need to put this energy somewhere else. You know, so yeah. my girls and LSD, I love it. LSD is one of my favorite substances or top two. And uh, but you have to give it. You you have yeah. to feed that creativity either by engaging socially or by being in nature or something like that. Yeah, one thing that I love and find interesting is that on all substances of this sort looking at a screen feels so bad so bad and it's yeah. like well this is what it always is i just don't notice like this is how you know yeah, yeah. i had that uh this experience with ibogaine that i had the flow dose and uh, when you're living the basinary state which is uh, um, around six to eight hours when you're living that my last vision was having a, a cell phone here and I move around and I could see the room, uh -huh. but I, I couldn't <laughs> step away from the fucking cell phone, you know? Uh -huh. And it was like, the, you know, like the person yeah. told me like that. And I, I remember I had to check on Atsy or something yeah. and the screen just felt so bad. So cringe. It's like, no, I don't. It's like yeah. nothing to do with it. No. Yeah. Hmm. I was going to ask you something else about Iboga, but I forgot. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so the main challenges in iboga for me is like uh, uh, the, the main difference with other uh, other plants is that iboga, it, it's so long. Mm. It's like uh, you know, in I I was ceremony or I was having in six hours you are back, you know? and in iboga in six hours you are starting. Mm. <laughs> and uh, another element that is very challenging is the uh, uh, thing called ataxia, which is a uh, very a lot of impediment in your motion abilities mm -hmm. so even reaching for a glass it, it's like you kind of not control your body mm -hmm. very much that's very tricky you know that's mm -hmm. like very very hard so to do iboga you have to be ready to be with yourself in your mind for 30 hours wow <laughs> and you can't really interact with people not so much okay and so that's a weird effect that you you, you forget everything you're, huh. you're saying so communicating is like you take so long Huh. Um, I mean, in the Witty tradition, they dance, and there's another thing in the setting we use, which is not a clinic, it's a retreat center. Um, it's more like a, a long and dark experience. Cool. Oh, yeah, I was going to see you. I uh, said flow dose, flood dose. These uh -huh. are just different. Yeah, so uh, Ibogaine is Ibogaine, the alcohol of the HCL, it's uh, measured by your weight. Okay. So, for example, a flow dose is. Start at a, a seven milligrams per kilo, okay. all the way up to we go we, we give fourteen in our clinic. We we don't go further. And uh, the booster dose is usually a half dose of what you took. 
Okay. So um, you start with the photos and the boosters just to uh, boost you. But it's like our protocol is we start um, the flow dose and then the day after is the recovery day. People uh -huh. are like laying down, like not engaging very much. Then the day after we go to a hike and we do a different, uh, like kind of more into mm -hmm. bringing them back into their body. And at the day after we give a, a booster dose. Ah, okay. So it's a long process. Uh, did you say flood dose? Flood, yeah, they like oh. flood. Oh, there's flood. Like, did you say flow also? Not flood. Oh, flood, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, flood dose, okay. Yeah, it's like cool. you, you are flooded by the Got it, okay. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, well, I definitely want to try it at some point. Um, it's awesome. Cool. Yes, I know you have a lot of treats going on. Where can people find out more about your work? I mean, I, I'm always being super low profile mm -hmm. and underground, but you can write me at Vicente at ibogacuest.com. Okay. Ibogacuest.com is where the retreats are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. And to find out, the, you know, to the microdosing programs and everything mm -hmm. through, through there awesome. or the, or the web pages. Awesome. Awesome, man. Thanks. Thanks, thanks for taking Thank the time. Thank you very much.